Thanks for joining us. My name is Jonathan Storman. I'm the preaching minister at the Pleasant Valley Church of Christ. Welcome to the series Wednesday Night Conversations. Whenever you're listening to them, we've brought in some of the best thinkers in church leadership and ministry, specifically on issues that we care about as a church, like racial reconciliation and evangelism and being an intergenerational church. If you're a part of PV or if you're outside of Pleasant Valley or even outside of Arkansas, I hope that this series will be as much a blessing to you as it has been to me. Hey everybody, I'm here with one of my college friends, Hambone Archibald. Uh, does anybody call you Hambone anymore? Uh, occasionally, I still have every nickname, so. Yeah. You're, now you're the, <laughs> the Reverend Hamilton Archibald. Back when, back when we like met for the first time, you were, what position did you play? I played fullback, I was one of the running back core and a, uh, and a full back at that. So they had me doing lots of blocking, a little bit of catching the ball out of the backfield, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you lived, we, we lived at, you, you were in Harbin, right? Um, actually, I wasn't in Harbin. I was just hanging out over there all the time. I was, I did Allen and, oh goodness, what is, what's the other, the other dorm? I'm forgetting all the dorm names now. Keller. Cone. Keller. Yes. Yeah. Keller. Yes. So, and, and I don't know whose wisdom it was, but they looked at this five foot seven little scrawny guy, me, and they said, we should put him in the football dorm. <laughs> 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 I guess it made sense on paper to somebody. So, uh, which was really fun. I have so many memories that we cannot share on a recorded Zoom conversation. I know, I know. Um, if I wasn't present for those stories, I heard about them. I heard Hamilton, about them. Do you know, so I'm at Pleasant Valley now, and do you know who our worship minister is? Who is that? Josh Kasinger. Wow. Do you remember that time? I do. Let's not, let's not say the name of the class or the teacher so it won't give too much away. But me and Josh, it was a Bible class, and me and Josh and Hamilton were sitting on the back row. And Josh, do you remember the professor telling me and Josh that he was going to make us get up and come sit down in the front as punishment? Because. <laughs> For the people that are listening, we just both like to make the scriptures come alive. That's what, yeah. that's what happens is, um, and I, I still have a tendency to see, to see the Lord's good book in the, the most different of lights. <laughs> well, I remember you had like a camcorder. You were, you were recording the, um, or didn't you, I mean, you had a camera, right? Yeah, I had, I had that little like, um, oh goodness, it was like a, like I had the fold up keyboard thing and all that. I was, I was, uh, you were like a very second nerd kind of deal. Well, so <laughs> we balanced each other out on that back row because I would like take a pen and mark on y'all. And uh, I kept, <laughs> I kept leaning over to your camera and making like commentary <laughs> for future Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh no. And now Josh and I work together, and so it's kind of um, now elders' meetings are like that. We, we, Excellent. Excellent. 
excellent. We've grown up a little bit. So Hamilton, you are a preacher in Arkansas, but just on, you're like 10 minutes away from Memphis. Yes. I'm my, my, from my, um, house, you can kind of almost see the outline of the bridge. Hmm. So it's lit up at night. So it's, you still, it's you still consider yourself an Arkansan, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's on my driver's license. Yeah. Can't deny. <laughs> you're, from, you're from Arkansas, aren't you? There's well, I'm from Tennessee originally. Oh. Originally, I was on the Memphis side. Uh, my mom's still a resident over there in Tennessee, and uh, moved since over here, which is kind of cool because we're. On the countryside, even though we got all the access to the big city, yeah, right. so the real difference is just that we say y'all more. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Pretty much it. So, man, I had a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about because we're friends and care about each other, and now that we're ministering in the same state, um, I want to have you come preach at PV. The, um, you know, since. George Floyd, it's presidential election year, all of all of these things, I have had some serious concerns about not just the country we happen to live in, but the state of the church of Jesus Christ. And I I have some serious concerns about um the deep divisions that I'm seeing and I <coughs> I also know that we've had different kind of life experiences and I, I was wondering like what, so when I go to Harding, I come, I'm homeschooled. I, I, uh, never been to a, any kind of school at all. I was like, people are everywhere. I was very sheltered. Um, my, my parents were foster parents and I grew up in a church where the preacher, it was a little 10 person anti-church and the preacher, um, God convicted him back in the sixties in Benton, Arkansas, that he was a racist. And so he moved to Mariana, Arkansas, which is a predominantly black community, even though he had his masters of divinity from ACU, what he did with his life was taught sixth grade math in a primarily black school. And so, that kind of, I, I, I felt like I bumped into something real when it comes to God and Jesus, because, uh, I mean, I, I grew up around a lot of racism and now I, I was being convicted of my own self by hearing brother Foy talk about how much the new Testament talks about this. And I realized Later on in life, when I would be, when I had my own doubts about faith and religion and those kind of things, one of the things that kept me tethered to the Christian faith was God convicting someone like Brother Foy that he was a racist when all of society around him was not doing that. Benton, Arkansas, in the 1960s was not some liberal bastion of, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, so you were a truly forward thinking person in a place where it was totally fine to. Um, I think he got a word from the Lord. I mm-hmm. honestly, 
he was uh, he he did not just think it; he sacrificially lived it out. Right. Beautiful. And, but all that to say, like I when I got baptized, I was like sixteen or seventeen years old, and this was a turning point in my life, like realizing all right, that that stuff has to go. So I come to Harding. And I am going to be very intentional about not, not letting people talk racist ways around me. And honest, I don't remember, you know, that being a huge struggle that I heard. But I also now, as a 40-year-old, which I think you're also pretty close to 40, aren't you, Hammy? Oh, no, I'm much younger. <laughs> Are you still in your 30s? Oh, absolutely, buddy. <laughs> 39 and loving every minute of it. Dude, like, when you have five kids, when you have five kids, I might as well pick up smoking. Like it takes life expectancy up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you look like you made it out okay. You made it out okay. I'm I'm filled with gray hair, all this gray hair. Every day, otherwise, you're like, whoa, that guy is father time himself. Um so I guess part, you know, you you come to Harding and the it's it's a predominantly white school i'm i'm in the majority in that what's what's the different experience like if you're if we're sitting down with uh two 18 year old seniors one's white and one's black and we're given you know kind of hey just here's what it's gonna feel like what would mm -hmm. you say to them with the most generous of explanations to harding because it's not like it's a it's a bad place but oh no Oh, I, I would say that Harding, I, I definitely enjoyed that experience and it did prepare me for um, the rest of my life. Um, I'm trying to think about exactly how to unpack that question because there were a lot of little pieces that were in there. I would say if you were to say where I started and what um, going to Harding really meant to me was it represented something pretty important for where I was in, in my faith journey. Kind of as uh, a youngster, I, I knew a couple of things. I had convinced in my mind, hold on a second, my babies are gone. So Harriet gets her name um, partially from Harriet Tubman, but not yeah. so much the slavery runaway section of it, but they also called Harriet Moses. That yeah. was her that was her nickname, and the beauty of the the uh, the nickname Moses was that she was taking her people to the promised land, and that's the part about it that I really I like. love it. I love it. All right, so the uh, the start of my uh, journey of faith, um, and kind of well, I guess if I was to say what prepared me for the the Harding experience, um, would say it started before that. Um, I was not always a great student, so uh, um, my family uh, put me in private school for high school, and in that situation, in that scenario, I ended up going to a private school that was predominantly white. I was the only black guy in my class, and one of four in the school. That was a very small school you know, to be fair. And that's what they did it for was for the class size, giving more one-on-one -on -one attention and all those kinds of things. But that was also kind of preparing me for that. So I kind of got, got that experience. Now, um, 
while at school I had that, at church, my church experience was always predominantly black. And then obviously the family situation was predominantly black as well. But um, those were some of the things that kind of helped me to be prepared for what it would be like at Harding. So I didn't get hit with phenomenal amounts of culture shock like other kids uh, sometimes do. Um, but the reason that I ended up at Harding was because as I was, I was getting ready for, for high school, what I had already decided quite selfishly was that I was going to be a millionaire by the age of 26. I was going to get into one of those multi-level marketing deals. Yeah. And I was going to make gaggles and gaggles of cash. I was going to get a bunch of people to buy a bunch of products and we were just going to roll in it and uh, money would not be an issue. So I'm not worried about that. I need to go to school for something that I want to know um and want to learn hamilton article the amway king the amway king as a matter of fact that's where that's where it started it started with my, my dad was in amway and so i would sit in the car while he was doing these meetings and going different places moving dropping off boxes of soap and all kinds of stuff <laughs> um, but there was a lot of a lot of good motivational speaking and different things that were a part of that yeah that were pretty beneficial in in learning like I didn't know it's kind of my Moses moment where I'm being prepared for um being yeah. prepared for a task even though I didn't know that's what it was what it, what it was actually doing um but uh, I knew that that's what I wanted but I also you know we had a really good youth group and in our youth group I felt like I was praying a lot and I was singing a lot and I was loving everything about my faith, but I didn't have a real good grasp, a grasp on the scriptures. Like I didn't really know what all was in the book. It was kind of like that, uh, that scene in one of the Medea movies where, where he's talking to the little girl or she, whatever, is talking to the little girl and she's explaining the Bible stories and she just messes all of them up. She just jumbles them all up and it's like, yeah, and that's why Abraham had to ride on a big fish and go to the place where they spit them out. And then, uh, you know, so it was like all of these Bible stories. I knew the stories. I knew the characters, but the timeline, none of that was in order. All of that was, was crazy. So I was like, I need, to, I need to figure this out. I need to understand this and know what God's word says for me. And so uh, since I wanted to play football, I wanted a, a Christian education from the Church of Christ, I was like, that means either I can go to Abilene or I could go to Harding. And Abilene is really far away from home. Yeah. And so uh, home for me, for those, those that are listening and don't know, is, is Memphis, Tennessee, um, originally. Uh, and, and so I ended up at Harding. So that was kind of how I ended up there. Um, what was the experience like? It, it was very much like a parody of what my earlier experience was like. So where I had uh, from school was kind of a, a white culture experience, but church was a black culture experience. While I was on the Harding campus, like much of the football, I was playing football, but I was also a Bible major. So I had this, yeah. um, this very much exposed to all the guys that were on the football team. Um, you and Jason Harden were the two like Bible majors that were on. The yes. Team. Yeah. We used to talk about being the, the holy backfield. We were, <laughs> were, yeah. were you in the KGB? Were you in the KGB club? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. I was so, one of the, the, the founding guys of KGB. Um, and then it went away. We won't talk about those stories. Uh, <laughs> 
I wasn't there, by the way. But anyway, finished throwing people under the bus. Um, but it was kind of that same, I had that, that same kind of experience. So that, that felt very familiar to me. So, um, Jason, Jason talked to me about code switching. Um, like when you, yeah. so I, I have never, I, I've, I've been in predominantly black spaces, uh, often as an adult, but I still, I still don't feel like because white culture is still the predominant culture in America and most cities, you know, it still doesn't feel, I don't feel a pressure to code switch, uh, which for, mm -hmm. can you, how do you explain code switching to people watching? Okay. So code switching would be changing. It would, it would be similar to changing your dialect. It, it would be, changing your dialect, changing the metaphors, changing what you're doing because it suits the scenario. It's like so, translating um, the culture. Or, Is it like translating? Say, it kind of, kind of. But like uh, code switching would mean I don't have to filter the way I want to say this right. to the way that you would understand this. So in a sense, translating, um, but you know, within uh, the one of the simple examples is um, the lingo that's used is understood from a particular perspective. Um, simple example, everyone will understand. I think uh, would be if we were to say, "Who's bad?" which is a Michael Jackson quote. It comes from his song, Who's Bad? And we understand that inside of that is not really a discussion about the things that are bad. It's not really a question about what's bad. Yeah. It is actually a description of who is the most awesome. Uh -huh. um, and um, if a person doesn't come from a place where they know Michael Jackson, they've never heard the song, they don't understand any of that, saying who's bad doesn't communicate the same thing. So yeah, it's, it's sure. stupid say that there's no point in saying that yeah i'll just say like i am awesome i feel awesome right now you know that would make more sense so i would switch what i want to say inside of my head the thing that i thought was who's bad and then the <laughs> thing that i ended up having to say was the thing that everybody else would understand yeah you know? that, um, that's such a great example <laughs> um <laughs> so if, and if I if I was to try it, who's bad? Then that would that would not work for me. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so one of one of the things that I wanted to talk with you is because I I like I mentioned earlier, I do feel this great tension in our, the country we happen to live in, and it's not like it's a problem that's unique to America. Every, you know, Rwanda obviously had a horrible civil war that was race-based. Um, the, every, every country, because this is, this is a demon that has faced a lot of different countries and a lot of different cultures. But I, I wanted to talk to you because we're both preachers and we both preach for the same fellowship. And mm -hmm. in our fellowship even, the divide is so stark that our nationally known preachers in one ethnic group 
are not known by the other ethnic groups. So I could say if you were to bring up Orpheus, you know, Orpheus or um, J.K. Uh, J.K. Uh, Ham Hamilton uh, mm -hmm. or um, Richard Barclay, Brother, Rick, Rick, Brother Richard Barclay, like mm -hmm. most white churches of Christ would not know those guys. Mm -hmm. but in, in your world, those guys are huge, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and so we have in our in churches of Christ. I feel like we have a thicker fellowship than most places. Like you're always two or three people removed from. Oh, I knew. Like when I preached in Chicago and I met your younger brother Hugh. Yeah. You know, but for mm -hmm. most, except in black and white churches, it, it tends to be further removed from that, and it it I think it grieves not that we want not that we you know are trying to say there shouldn't be predominantly black churches um that, that white churches should just you know gobble up those those special you know communities of faith but what it feels to me like is our fellowship that is very thick we we believe the bible but our fellowship has been cut down the very dividing lines of um, of America's original sin. Mm -hmm. So, as a preacher, as somebody who try to tries to live out the New Testament, what what do you say? What why does this matter beyond just like the next thing, like politically or you know what I'm saying? What, yes. What is the theological impulse for this to be something that we ought to care about? I think it's something that we, we ought to care about because it actually adds incredible depth to Jesus's explanations about how we should do to others as we would want done to us. Huh. It makes that statement incredibly rich and then also, it gives that statement the absolute difficulty that it needs to have. Mm. Um, because in the midst of these discussions, we, we have found that, you know, there are a lot of people that have grown very uncomfortable with it. Um, and I think that one of, the, one of the ways that people deal with it, because they've become uncomfortable with um, race discussions, is that we try and figure out a reason why we don't need to have to deal with it. There is like, there is some kind of a reason why we don't need to have to deal with it. So for example, when, um, when George Floyd died, um, a little bit after that, uh, a lady named Candace Owens produced a video that was talking about all the reasons we don't need to turn George Floyd into a hero. Um, and that, that video was pretty inflammatory from one perspective, and then it was justifying to another perspective. And many people latched onto that and they said, oh, Ham, you got to see this. Like, you need to see this. You need to know the real story about who he was. You need to know how terrible this guy was. Uh, meanwhile, there was whole groups of, of Black people that were extremely upset about this. Mm. Um, and what was happening, what, what occurred to me in watching the video and realizing what was going on was that what she was doing as she talked about all of the negative things 
that have happened inside of this man's life was one talking past the point that other people were trying to say, um, which was this man has been egregiously treated. Mm -hmm. And if other people are dealing with this kind of egregious treatment, this needs to be addressed. And then making it more personal about um, the, the downfalls and the mistakes of this man. And by making it about those things, then we can now dismiss what happens to him on a certain level. Right. So it, it kind of falls into the, into the category. I think if we were to, to, to continue to uh, theologize it, it's, it's the discussion of Job. So Job gets into, um, he gets into this situation. All of his stuff is taken away from him. Uh, he loses his family. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. And his friends come along and they say, look, don't you understand how this works? If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. And then Job is in the situation where he's like, I've done nothing but good. I don't understand. I do not get this. And his friends are like, no, you've obviously done bad. You have obviously done bad. If we could just isolate, figure out where the bad is, then yeah. now you would understand your suffering. Um, and so in one sense, that's kind of what happened with that was, um, she said enough things that made people go, okay, well, bad equals bad. And that's now this makes sense. Now I can carry on with my life as it was before. This disruption, um, this horrible incident, I can draw that. I can paint that as a one-off in time. And this is not a normative practice that exists because I don't see it very regularly. Um, uh, but for another group of people, they have been experiencing it over and over and over and over and over again. So it represents one of many as opposed to an isolated incident. And that puts people on two very different right. spectrums yeah. of thought. And so they end up addressing the issue very differently. When Jason and I, when Jason and I talked about this particular thing, it was much closer to the George Floyd killing than um, we are now, but one of the things that we talked about was I went on a bus ride a few years ago with 10 black preachers and 10 white preachers, and we went all over the civil rights movement. We stayed in Tuskegee University um, for one night, and but we were gone for a few days and had a lot of meals together, and nothing changed my perception of things more than that, because like I... I had preach, preachers who I trusted, who like I learned to care about and love, tell me about during their lifetime. Yeah. They're not much older than us. They're maybe 20 years older, seeing a person lynched and, uh, or, and, and sundown towns and um, the, those kind of things. So you start being like, okay, this is recent history, one. Yeah, and the kind of experience that I have you know, for me growing up, I think, you know, feel free to push back on any of this. I'm going to call you Brother Hamilton because I, I, we're family. Mm -hmm. For me, my experience with police officers is that they are noble people doing sacrificial work, putting their lives in danger. And when I was talking with my preacher brothers, um, their experiences were different than that, even though some of them had police in their family mm -hmm. you know it was it was 
these two very different experiences. And it feels to me like most white people are, are, we, we have, we've heard these stories for a while, but we tend to just kind of downplay our black yeah. brothers and sisters experiences because we haven't had them and we can't, we can't even relate to them because yeah. it's kind of like hearing that. Yeah. Superman's good, but every now and then he has a really bad day and like destroys a city or something. That's a horrible <laughs> metaphor, but you know what yeah. I mean? What does that, is that how it feels when you talk to your white brothers and sisters about kind it of the does. black experience in America? It does. Well, one of the places where um, I see errors in our thinking is in attempts to assess blame and give people blame because it creates the wrong kinds of dynamics. So um, one of the ways that I try and get people to understand the situation is if you do two levels for anything, and there is the higher ups and the people that are underneath of them, the higher ups may get to dictate what is going to happen but then the people beneath that now have to go and carry those things out, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in one sense, the people that are in the top position don't have to understand everything that's going on with the people below them so long as they go and, and they do it. Like they don't have the need to have to empathize with that group of people or the, that person. Um, it, it may be easiest to think about it inside of a inside of a job like um all the time you'll see places where the employees complain well the bosses just don't understand what all we have to do they say just go do this but they don't understand that do this sure. how, how it affects everything um and so when a person is in that position in the lower position they not only have to understand themselves and what's going on on this level they have to understand the other level and for much of what I was seeing growing up um, was that the misunderstandings for white America of black America largely came from the fact they didn't have to have that perspective. And that oftentimes people in black America um, by feature of um, where they went to school or where they worked or whatever, also had to not only understand what was going on in black America, they also had to understand what was going on in white America as well. And so they had a perspective of both of these levels. And so they were able to empathize or to understand where both people are coming from. And so when, when um, we've had all of these, these recent race debates, like I have developed very deep friendships with people in every different um, kind of social group. Um, and it, and it changes the way that you look at it. So if you if you made it a blame thing, then now you're you're going to make white people feel guilty for what it is that black people have experienced, whether it is inside of their lifetimes or over the course of the span of history. And now people are trying to defend that because I don't want to feel guilt about this scenario. 
but the real request for um, for people in that situation is not guilt. That's not what anybody wants or needs. What is necessary to improve it is actual empathy. And um, yeah. I heard an NFL player talking about it. An NFL player kind of turned activist. I forgot his, his name. But is he was talking comfortable conversations with a black man? I can't remember. I can't he, remember. There's a, there's a video series on YouTube called Uncomfortable Conversations with a black man and he brings in different people and addresses. Oh, yeah, I know the one you're talking about. No, 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 this was a different a different NFL guy. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about him, but he does an excellent job. He has some really good conversations that are out there. But but in this particular one, what he did was he said that, um, that guilt, guilt comes from a power position. Mm. The reason that a person would feel guilt is because they recognize that they have a sense of power and a, a version of authority inside of a situation. They could have done something and they did not. Yeah. And that's what gives you guilt. And I thought, wow, that is powerful um, and worth hearing. Uh, but empathy is not guilt. It's not the same thing. Empathy is about trying to grasp and understand what a person is feeling as they are experiencing it. Um, and that's what, what is really inside of what Jesus says when, when he calls for the people um, to treat others the way that they would want to be treated. You know, and, and Jesus smokes what he's selling here, right? Like he uh -huh. sits down with the Samaritan woman who was, you know, a very different, you know, they were uh, pretty despised tells a story in which the Samaritan is the good guy. Um, the, one, of the, one of the best, New I mean, we're, we're big on New Testament examples. And one of the best examples for me of, of this, of Jesus trying to create a new kind of humanity, is having Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot in the same 12 disciples. Yeah. And Matthew actually emphasizes the differences more than any other gospel because I think it, he realizes what a big deal this was. Mm -hmm. He was the recipient of being included in a group that had previously been hostile towards him. And uh, to, have, to have those different people in the 12 disciples shows us uh, a hierarchy of loyalties, Right. That okay, you're a, you're a zealot, you're a you're a tax collector, but that's not the most important thing about you. In fact, it's kind of incidental. What uh -huh. the most important thing about you is your relationship to King Jesus. Yes. And, and the reason that I uh, I I want to talk to other preachers about this is because I feel like somewhere along the way, I accepted the identity of. I'm primarily a white man before I am a Christian, mm -hmm. a disciple of Jesus. I feel like our churches have done this and yeah. our individual Christians have done this. Like, yeah, we, you know, we, we believe all the same things for the most part, but there's, we just don't have fellowship, right? You, mm -hmm. we were talking before we started recording earlier and you were talking about, what Jesus came to do. Do you mind riffing on that for a little bit? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, 
um, kind of the, the Matthew 22 scenario where, where you find um, you know, the situations where Jesus deals with these three different groups. He, he deals with the Pharisees, uh, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. Um, and, and for people that are not aware, these three groups are um, the primary groups that are making up the Sanhedrin. These are the people that are kind of in charge. If you're trying to get a good understanding of how the Sanhedrin would work, they had some power, but their power was limited um, to what they could do based on what the Roman rule would have, would have allowed them to do. So it's kind of like if we were to say, well, states have rights, but right. the national um, our, our national government, uh, it, it has an overrule. It has an oversay over what the states can even do. It's kind of similar to that. And, and so in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is confronted by these different groups, like all three are coming to try and trap him. They try and trip him up. And they, they come to him and they ask him these questions. Um, and um, the first one of those questions that deals with the Herodians and the Pharisees, these people that don't normally get together or work together are now going to be teaming up so that they can go and try and get Jesus. Um, they ask him uh, whether they should pay the temple tax or pay tax to Caesar. You know, And the idea is no matter what you pick, no matter which one of these you choose, you're going to be wrong and the other group is going to hate you. And now they can go and they can crucify you or they can, you will be ruined in public opinion uh, for whatever your answer is to this question. And so Jesus steps back out of the situation, doesn't give them the answer that they are wanting instead says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Um, and the undertone for what Jesus is, is doing is he is saying that he's not a part of either one of these tribes, right. not a Herodian, not a, a Pharisee. I'm not a part of either one of those tribes, but we should be a part of a different allegiance, that our allegiance should be to God. Um, one of the things that's interesting is, is for people that haven't read Matthew 22, go back and take a look at that because it parallels a lot of what we're dealing with right now. It is Jesus literally getting politically ambushed um, because after he finishes this conversation with the Herodians and the Pharisees, the Sadducees come up and they start asking a whole nother uh, set of questions. And it's this really ridiculous question that I imagine they may have formulated before. Um, uh, it's, well, a man dies. He has no kids. His wife, according to the law of Moses, has to be passed on to the next brother. And then that guy dies, and they don't have any children, and it has to be passed on to the next brother. And that happens again and again and again, seven times. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And the way the question is set up is set up for you to try and figure out what the answer to this is. And well, maybe it's the first one. I don't know. Maybe it's the second one. I mean, I guess technically she was married to all of them. So I don't know, which the Sadducees don't even really believe in the resurrection. And it's almost like they're trying to make the resurrection ridiculous. And what Jesus does is he calls them out. He's like, you don't know the scriptures mm -hmm. that we will be more like the angels 
and we will be neither given nor taken in marriage in the resurrection. And what he does is he takes their question, which is a question about physical ownership, like the question entirely is a question of physical ownership from the idea of who you're married to and a sense of physical ownership to the real purpose of that law, which uh, is in Deuteronomy, I think 23, maybe. I might be wrong. But if that was about making sure that there is land ownership that gets passed on and the name is kept up and that lineage is allowed to continue on. That was the entire purpose of it. But all of that was about physical, um, about a physical establishment. And so Jesus elevates the question and says, forget about the question of marriage. What about the resurrection? Like you need to deal with this more eternal question rather than this simple, physical, temporary question. What about the eternal question of what happens at the resurrection? The real question is about the resurrection. And so um, um, they kind of miss it. And so what Jesus is doing is he's not saying, I'm not, I'm not red, I'm not blue, I'm a different tribe altogether. Yeah. I'm establishing a different tribe altogether. Yeah. And that's what he's calling his people to. Yeah. So how do we, Hamilton, as we kind of close this, how do we do that? I mean, empathy, I, I agree. Empathy is the thing, but the, the best studies I've read on empathy, the glaring weakness with empathy is that you tend to empathize your, with your own people. Like the people who, you know, have you, have you heard this before? It's, it's everything on why like uh, medical, medical um, doctors, like statistically, not throwing shade at doctors, but statistically, they will give less pain medication to black patients than they will white mm -hmm. patients, you know, things like that. Like, I feel like the word kindness comes from kin, like you're kind to people who are related to you. And we cannot be a church of a different kind if we do not have deep fellowship. And um, if, the, if, if the word calling you brother doesn't mean something right? more than symbolic. Mm -hmm. So how do we do this? I mean, what's, what's just a couple of practical things that people of goodwill and open hearts and, that are full of the Holy Spirit can do right now? Um, it would definitely start with conversations with people from the perspective of what can I learn? Uh -huh. I think that that is probably the starting place. Um, really interestingly, um, when all that George Floyd stuff happened, there's a guy that comes to our to come to our church and, and he attends um, from time to time. His sister stays across the street and, and he's kind of a, a vagrant really. Um, and sometimes he's, you know, kind of talking off the top of his head, he's kind of yells to the sky and does a number of different things. Um, but I was talking to him and uh, about all this, I, I asked him, I said, Richard, what do you, what do you think about all the stuff that's going on right now? And Richard just kind of paused and he thought for a second, he's like, well, you know, the protests we got going around here, they don't, they don't even really make sense. It's like, what do you mean? What do you mean they don't make sense? 
he said, Richard said, I was, I was walking down the street like I always do. And, um, and they were walking on the sidewalk with signs at night, but you couldn't read the signs because it was at night. <laughs> and it was, uh, it, it was, it was kind of interesting that he said that. Um, and then, then the next thing that he does is he says, um, he kind of starts rocking back and forth and he's, and he's got a Bible in his hand. It was about, it was time for us to start Bible study. He's got a Bible in his hand. And so he opens up his, opens up the Bible and he just starts reading and he starts reading from, um, from James. Um, let me see if I can't find that passage I was reading in James because it was really telling. Um, he started reading. This is just quietly by himself, just starts reading out loud. James 4, 1 through 12. Uh. He starts reading, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he's jealous, his, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? but it gives us more grace. This is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinner. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter in the morning, your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save or destroy. But you who are you, excuse me, who are you to judge your neighbor? Mm. Now, the thing that was interesting to me was a man that most people would call crazy sat down in the midst of all of the turmoil and all of the chaos and started reading that passage. Uh. And I couldn't hear anything but God. Cause I was like, that's, that feels like yeah. exactly where we are. We got fights, we got quarrels. And what is the source of the fights and the quarrels? It's the desires that we have that are inside of us. It's the <laughs> desire to hold on to power or the desire to go and establish more power to to have all of these, these back and forth, but wow. the key um, in that was to find association with God. Wow. That the real answer to the problem is in finding association with God. I feel like Christians have the best answer to the problems that face us right now in that we have a unifying factor. Like we have a thing that calls us to be connected when everything else around us is calling us to be divided. 
Yeah. But it's a matter of whether or not we'll actually latch on to that. Yeah, that's good, man. That's so good. You say that guy, people think he's crazy. It sounds like he's crazy, right? <laughs> it's crazy like a fox. Yeah. So, Hamilton, congrats um, to you and Lydia on your new daughter being born. Welcome to the world. And, man, thanks so much for taking time to visit today. I, I'm very grateful for you and for being able to – I'm glad you chose to go to Harding, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate everything and everything you're doing down there, the entire PV family. Uh, I've gotten to know uh, some of you guys uh, via – the the different youth activities and things during summer at, at Harding's um, Uplift. Um, we've done that at several years with the with the whole PV crew, and y'all come through real strong. Uh, and so it's been it's been good to catch up with you too, Jonathan. Man, I have not seen you in forever and ever. And so it's good to hear that you're doing well. That you finally made it out of Texas. That was close. <laughs> and <laughs> welcome home. Thanks, man. It's good to. Yeah. Be home.